Hi, I'm Tony Caldwell. And I'm Audrey Assad. Here at Archetypical, we hope to breathe new life into old stories by looking back at the archetypes of religion with evolved consciousness. We're here to develop language for our inner experience, to develop the capacity to think symbolically, and to bring our beloved myths into 3D relief in our lives. So I thought we'd start out today talking about ideologies, and I'll quote Carl Jung from 1939. Our blight is ideologies. They are the long-expected Antichrist. National Socialism is a near religion. Communism claims paradise come to earth again. We are far better protected against failing crops, inundations, epidemics, and invasions than we are against our own deplorable spiritual inferiority which seems to have little resistance to psychic epidemics. Mm. I'm thinking about how currently, here and now, we're experiencing a pandemic, mm -hmm. so a real epidemic uh, on a global scale, but also very much a psychic epidemic. And they're, they're happening simultaneously, and they're almost like feeding one another. So the more that we're sort of isolated to our homes and, and our sense of what's normal and sort of the chaos of our uh, paces um, is all changed. It gives us time to self-reflect. And a lot of us aren't doing that. We're like, you know, going down rabbit holes and stuff. But it gives us that time to really sit and, and kind of feel and think about maybe a new way forward in a way that I don't know about you, but when I'm physically ill, um, I become really self-reflective. I think most of us do because mm -hmm. we have to be still and quiet in mm -hmm. a way that we typically don't. And I'm wondering what, mm. you know, on this theme of that which is sort of opposed to Christ or the shadow side of Christ, mm. what opportunities we might have for not just self-reflection, but, um, mm -hmm. but sort of a re- a reevaluation and a recalibration of how we, mm -hmm. who we are and how we are in the world. Yeah, there, I think it's been rife with opportunities for that. The one thing that comes to my mind immediately is sort of the halting, the grinding of the gears of the capitalist machine of our country. And you know, lots of things have figured out a way to stay open, but let's take small businesses, for example. Like I have friends who own companies who have had to like really drastically adapt to this new situation. And in doing that, um, people have had to, I guess, just sort of reckon with their actual place in the society we're in and really see that like, no one's coming to save me. That's like a lot of us are having that experience and we've maybe had this idea that the government would, you know, but they've bungled and bumbled almost everything about this situation. People got a $1,200 check in April or May, but that's nothing. It's just nothing in the pot of what people need. And um, so I think we're being given an opportunity to examine our capitalism, the way it's structured, the way it values people and the way it measures them by their productivity. Like imagine... And this is a sensitive this is a sensitive topic, and I'm sure I'm going to misspeak, so I apologize in advance. And any of y'all are welcome to offer me constructive criticism on this because I'm still learning. But I think it's given me a unique 
opportunity in my life to understand what disabled people or chronically ill people are often dealing with when people measure humans by some benchmark of productivity. And people who are confined to their homes all the time are essentially, I think, treated almost like lepers. Like, we don't know why you matter to us culturally. That's the kind of, like, cultural story that often happens about people who live with the type of illness or disability that makes them, you know, maybe, like, unable to work a traditional day job or, you know, to work at all. Um, so what is their cultural value? And, I, you know, people being forced to stay at home and not maybe they get let go from their job and then suddenly they're wrestling with what do, what's my role in the world and like how important am I and what do I mean um, to my own culture anymore when I don't have this role to play and it's been giving me an insight into the fact that even before this pandemic there are people who are sort of relegated to the fringes because they're not quote-unquote productive. I think this pandemic is giving us an a real opportunity to reckon with capitalism and what it says about how we look at people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how one thing I've observed. I love that. Um, coming from a social work background, it makes me think of people who use the language uh, like, um, well, that person's a drain on the system. Mm-hmm. I hate that language because mm-hmm. it's it one enshrines the system it does and it too dehumanizes the human and and you know in reality a lot of people who are quote draining the system are the working poor who are working multiple jobs Mm. and the fact that we can't see that Mm. you know that um it really brings new light to you know what it means to serve two masters say more about that yeah so you know we're not trying to demonize capitalism, but if, if, if we hear Dr. King for who he was, he was very much a socialist mm-hmm. um, and didn't hide that, hide that or deny that. Um, but it seems like the government wouldn't have to try to move into or even dabble in socialism if we as humans, and especially people, because we are... Um, you know, not a Christian nation as far as how we operate, but in word or in, um, by, by the definition of the majority, I would say in our nation, we're, we're a nation of Christians, Hmm. uh, numerically, um, to some degree. Um, if, we behaved in ways consistent with Jesus, I think that would look like socialism in a way to where um, the last were first, the first were last, um, basic needs were taken care of. Even if you just look at Levitical law mm-hmm. and like, what if we had Jubilee years mm. for predatory lending and <laughs> things like that? <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Like it, it would, yes. it's, um, so I'm not trying to bash capitalism because I do have my own addiction to it and my place oh, sure. in it. But uh, it is the quite work there. <laughs> it is quite the opposite of mm. Jesus. I can see where, you know, vows of poverty and things like that are mm. are important models for alternative ways mm. of being in the world. 
They are. And I have a very non-substantiated hypothesis about that, but that monks who are nuns and people who have abstention vows of those types um, where they live in poverty intentionally. I've met, I've met Franciscan monks who don't wear shoes and who have the dirtiest feet you have ever seen. And they come to your concert and they're like, hi, and they smell and they don't shower. And they're like, that's their thing. They're like, I live without, I live without on purpose. And you know, a lot of people might look at that and be like, it's so extreme. But my working hypothesis is that it, that we need some people to be the man on the mountain living extremely because it actually might, um, because of how extreme it is, it might almost like, so if I think, let me, let me paint a picture. If I think of the collective as like, let's say like a spider web and there's a big imbalance, uh, someone's pulling a bunch of threads on one side toward greed, corruption, and consumption. So, 10 million people are pulling threads that way. 10,000 people are living without anything on purpose and they have more pull on their end of the web because of how much they're going without. So they might balance for 10 people in the collective because of how much they're getting rid of. And that's kind of how I see it. It's like we kind of need those wild prophets eating honey and locusts in the desert because if we don't have them, the imbalance will be even greater. Um, again, unsubstantiated, but that's kind of how I poetically think about those people, that they, they have a very important role in right. culture, even though they're living outside it in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really highlights how any social model, you know, in socialism, in, in the way that's played out historically in, in, in places that's been attempted to some degree, ends up being very dehumanizing, mm -hmm. you know, and then capitalism becomes very dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems that the objectification of humans seems to be that which is the opposite of Jesus, if you will. Mm. Um, and mm. it, it really kind of brings me back to, to Jung's quote about ideology. And if, if we mix capitalism, race, gender, um, regional affiliations and just all these different sort of additives and preservatives to mm. say uh, a faith uh, system or a belief. So if, if I end up being a straight, white, male, southern, upper middle class Christian, man, by the time you get way through all of that shit and just get to Christian, what's left mm. as far as what takes a claim or a hold on my identity? You know, yeah. and so I'd like to talk about that for a second, about just what all labels we wear. I'm thinking about how, I guess, the, the, thing, the image that comes to mind is like a NASCAR driver that mm -hmm. has all these symbols all over them of like, who mm -hmm. owns me, basically. Ooh, interesting. And I'm like, what would that, what, if we all made our own shirts, what would that With look like? With our sponsors? Like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I've never thought, what an interesting yeah. exercise. Oh, I can tell you right now a couple of restaurants in this town that would have a spot on my, on my jacket. Oh, that's really fascinating. I'm, I'm seeing it all pop up, like clothing, <laughs> the, the like fast fashion places that I still spend my money at, even though I believe in ethical fashion. I don't often 
buy from those places because of the cost, which I have like some grace for myself about, but also it's hypocritical. I can think of so many things that I would see on there and go like, ooh, I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, y'all who are listening, maybe that would be a really interesting exercise to do. To think about your NASCAR coveralls. <laughs> yeah, and not in a shame-inducing uh, way, but just as a no. just as sort of you know self-exploration. Yeah. I love that. So one of the things that that Jung talked about when he talked about the Antichrist archetype was how archetypes are, among other things, patterns of behavior. And that's kind of what mm-hmm. we were just kind of touching on there in a way. But he, he talked about how these have polarity. So there's sort of a, there's a, he believed in a sort of binary mm-hmm. quality to how we process mm-hmm. reality. And that's why we end up with all these splits, mm-hmm. you know, theologically and mm-hmm. um, politically and, and just where you see things move to far left and far right, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And, um, and another thing he talked about, which I think is really important to talk about in, in our current political climate, because I think our current political climate is it's a manifestation of things that have been stirring for a very long time. Um, and some of these energies have been active, of course, way before uh, the founding of America. You know, mm-hmm. we tend to like frame things in this way that's like America-centric, but I mean, Pluto hasn't even been around the sun one time since America's been mm-hmm. a country. You know what I mean? So oh, that's wild. Yeah. And so to, to <laughs> kind of shrink down our sort of American-centric and then Eurocentric ways of thinking and think, you know, what what are these themes throughout humanity that are manifesting right now? And, and I think it's fair, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, to draw parallels between what was brewing in the collective in 1930s Germany and how that manifests in the 40s and what was brewing in the collective in the early 2000s and how it's manifest mm. now. You know, like, yep. what's, what's, what's going on with us? Let's talk about us and us being a nation. Mm. Um, and what, what does that feel like for you and how, you, how do you process that right now? I'm recalling in the 90s, I would have been probably, when was Bill Clinton elected? 94? No, 92? Mm-hmm. 92. Um, yeah, because then in 96, if I got that right, yeah. So I would have been nine when he was elected. And I have two memories popping up because we had our school elections, you know, that leading up to the um, actual election that year. And, you know, we had like, I don't remember how they did it, but they had they had some presentation on each candidate, you know, and like trying to outline their policies. And then they were like, you should cast your vote. And we did it twice. They did it, they did it once. And then we had another set of group discussions about it, which is such a cool thing, you know, for elementary school to do. And people would get up and express their opinions, like kids just talking. I'm sure most of that was spouting what their parents were saying. But even so, like, very cool exercise. And then you would cast your vote again, like, to see if anything shifted after the group discussion happened. And I voted for Bill Clinton twice when my parents were 
avid like Rush Limbaugh listeners and really um, stressed my mom. You know, we were raised in like a culture in Plymouth Brethren, which is where I was brought up, that was extremely at times very stressed about the end times and the Antichrist arising. We were like really looking out for it and I felt very stressed about it. So it's interesting to me that in a culture and a, a subculture that I was part of where Bill Clinton was seen as, you know, maybe the Antichrist even, um, I voted for him twice and I had so much shame about it that I remember when, he, when the election was on TV the night it was happening, I had developed cold sores around the rim of top and bottom lip. I had like 10 or 11 of them. Part of it was from cultural stress. I was feeling the stress of the Rush Limbaugh stories. Mm -hmm. I I was hearing it in the car and just like, oh my God, the world's going to end. But also I voted for this devil, you know, like what's wrong with me? And I felt so, but I felt so, even then I was like, I don't know if I buy all this, but I could not seem to divorce myself enough from the Antichrist tribulation narrative that I was being fed to not, I just had no inner peace. It was so tumultuous. I was so afraid of like both the end times and my inexplicable sort of rejection of, of it, but I, I couldn't fully reject it because what if it's true, you know? So there's just like such a stress, um, so much cortisol from that. And so I was just thinking about that little microcosmic moment of, of the wrestling I was having to do. And um, so when I think about now, like how many kids are being raised in homes right now during this pandemic where the narratives of lack and scarcity and terror are kind of being really deeply perpetuated in our own current cultural stories through the fears about the vaccine or the fears about, you know, uh, Facebook, which I mean, all, some of those carry really deep validity. Like we are wrestling with new technologies that have all kinds of implications and they're scary. But like, how are kids being currently sort of stressed out and traumatized even by the fear that's running rampant throughout these conversations? Mm. Um, and it's interesting to me because I, I do know some people in the anti-mask, anti-vaccine camp, which aren't always the same, but I do know some people who are in those camps and they're accusing the liberals of being fear mongers, right? But I'm like, mm, I think that's everywhere. Mm -hmm. I think that's everywhere. Yeah. Oh, that's so painfully accurate that, you know, we're, you know, when we're talking about um, Jesus in the past three episodes, you know, there's, there's been this, I think, unintentional, but we keep coming back to embodiment. And, and to me, mm -hmm. that involves modeling. Mm -hmm. and, and you just made me really think about what are we modeling for our kids because they're, they're undistracted. They're not at school and they're not right. doing all, all the things and they're at home mm -hmm. and watching and soaking up and being socialized about how the adults are behaving and learning how to mm -hmm. marginalize and demonize and split and mm -hmm. hate and just all this... God, it feels, it, it really, you just really hit on a complete and total manifestation of the Antichrist in a very real way. It's everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I think about, like, again, it can happen 
in any uh, liberal conservative home. It's we are just not immune to the othering and the and in a way I'm like I have so much sympathy. I I'm sure I do this in my own ways. I mean I I know I do because it's impossible to avoid like the temptation entirely, I think, unless you're maybe, maybe if you're Ram Dass, but I don't think so. I think even if you're Ram Dass, you know, he would just go like, oh yeah, I'm doing that. I'm going to laugh at that and say like, you silly little, you know, ego story. And that's, that's an ideal place to be sitting is when you can see yourself doing something and go like, oh, you sweet little, you know, you sweet little complex egoic being like, I'm not going to let you run my life, but thank you for being here. And that's a place that most of us are just not arriving at yet. And that's understandable because it takes a lot of healing to do that. And I'm imagining what would it be like for a kid to grow up in a home where the parents are able to go like stop themselves and go, you know what? Wow, my story right now about this person or this group is really showing me that I have some internal work to do Mm -hmm. around my own wounds. (laughs) What would that be like for kids I'm trying to be that kind of mom to my kids. I My son doesn't really get it yet, but I will say things like that in front of him when I catch myself, especially if I'm yelling at him, which doesn't happen that much except at bedtime. That's like the one time that I struggle because they just go freaking crazy at bedtime. And I don't know how else to like corral, but by raising my voice, because I don't hit and I'm like, what do I do? And I'll, but I'll talk to him about it and say like, you know, your behavior brought something out in me, but it is not to blame for my behavior. And I have a whole life before you ever got here with, you know, experiences. And I'm trying to explain triggers to him basically from an early age, because I'm like, I think if we could do that, if we could model for our kids in imperfect behavior, followed by self-awareness and introspection, that's the ideal. Cause we're never going to be able to be perfect in front of our kids. They would actually have their own whole set of wounds around that. I think the most healing thing is like showing what it looks like to catch yourself in your shadow and accept it and then try to heal it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, man. My cynical self is like, that'll never happen culturally. That's where my mind goes. That'll never happen. It's not possible. And I don't know if that's true, but that's what my my inner narrative is Right. right in this moment. I'm like, that will, we'll always have hysteria. We'll always have psychic epidemics. We will always have antichrist obsession. And that's how it is. And I don't know if that's true, but that's my story right now. Yeah. That's how I feel. Absolutely. Yeah, I have to keep a watch on that in my home because, you know, the culture we came from was, we were very much sort of a minority in that culture as far as our stances and beliefs on social issues. And mm-hmm. so sometimes, you know, the, the, uh, the majority of sort of nasty feeling energy and comments and you know, maltreatment, that sort of thing has come from that camp mm-hmm. uh, towards our family. And, and so sometimes I'll catch my son say something like, well, you know, Republicans, this or that. And I'm like, hang on, let's reframe that. Mm-hmm. You know, let's not sort of get into that energy. And um, yeah. and, and you, you, you make a beautiful point there where, where if we if we take on the nature and character of the energy that we feel is opposed to us it it wins yeah 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 and that's that's my like when i'm doing my own work that's my that's the entry point for really dark stuff for me it to collude with dark stuff that's already there Mm -hmm. you know 
and that's that's really I think mm. I think where our where our triggers and where our wounds and pain and you know historical factors that have um, been difficult are mm. are great entry points for are great activating points as well for for us to embody that to do the things that we do not wish to do, <laughs> if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I'm trying to think about, that's well said. I'm trying to think about like, is there a recent sort of experience that I've had where I've integrated a shadow thing? Oh yeah, I can think of one. Um, I have a friend who I've known since 2008 and um, so we've been friends a while, but our friendship has had ebbs and flows in terms of frequency and consistency. But in the last two years or three years, we've really been, you know, pretty tightly knit. And I think that's probably for life, you know, in a way that I can sort of feel that we've hit a certain stride and what a gift that is. Um, and she and I were talking recently and we ended up just telling each other the sort of mental chatter of the shadow that we have about each other in a total space of non-judgment. Mm. I mean, you couldn't do that with everybody. Right. Right. But like she and I were able to go, I have this insecurity about our friendship and about how I perceive you in this particular way in your career and like where I see myself. I have jealousy. I have envy about this. And I, I struggle when you say X because then this chatter comes up for me. But we, we were like literally holding each other. And every time one of us would say that kind of thing, the other would say, I love and accept your shadow. Mm. Thank you for telling me. And like, we basically were in a space where we could refuse to take it personally because it isn't personal. I mean, it's personal to you, but it actually has so little to do with what you're looking at. You know, that person is just bringing something up in yourself that you already have going on. They're only a mirror in a lot of ways. If they're a safe human who they love you, you like they're just a mirror to you. And we were able to practice like, seeing each other in that way and seeing ourselves. And it was a very healing experience to say out loud to someone who I love, like, hey, sometimes my ego has this story and I'm sorry, you know, and for that person to go, like, there's nothing to forgive. I love and accept Mm. that you have this and here's mine. But I was like, this is, we had this conversation after we were like, how can we teach this in safety? Because you couldn't do this with every person because not every person would be a safe person to do that with mm-hmm. at all. But when you have that person in your life or people, how do we teach this practice of, of the right moment, the right people, like revealing our shadows to mm-hmm. the safest people in our lives and saying like, here's my actual shit I want you to see. Mm. Because that seeing is such, it's a healing gaze. Like, and some of that is your own gaze on yourself, but there's a uniquely healing thing when someone safe sees you and accepts that. Mm. It was really beautiful. Breaks down the whole ego game. It really does. God, that's, uh, that's brilliant because, um, you know, if not before middle school, middle school is where we learn to hide mm-hmm. out of necessity, mm-hmm. you know, and, oh, yeah. and we tend to look at that and go, yeah, that's a, that's a psychological nightmare in that stage and just say, but, but that's the way things are instead of intervening, you know, I mean, they're kids at that age are just mimicking what Mm -hmm. the adults do. Yeah. And that's, you know, Rene Girard, the philosopher who died 
I want to say 15 years ago, so he's pretty contemporary. He's the one who pioneered this idea of mimetic theory, which is that all of our desires are some kind of mimicking. We learn who we are by mimicking and sort of, and that can go very sideways, you know, especially in like scapegoat um, type of situation, let's mm-hmm. say, where we look at like our parents and we're like, oh, someone's to blame for my existential stress. Mm-hmm. There it is. Like I'm putting all of that fear on that person and I'm going to, instead of, you know, like dealing with it, I'm going to dump it on this other person this being or this figure Mm -hmm. and we learn that by watching and it can go it can go well because we we are we do learn by being mirrored Mm -hmm. like biologically we do as babies those mirror neurons that are given to us by ideally you know a loving parent um who like we smile and they smile back and we get this like clue like oh that's a that's a pleasing thing that's a connected thing when i do this i feel connection so you keep doing it and that's how you learn to become a human I mean, if you didn't have a parent, I don't know what, you would be a feral cat. Like, you wouldn't right. be um, emotionally intelligent. And because how we learn that is through mirroring. So that's, that's just a reality of life, but it can go so sideways. Um, the mimicking, so sideways. Mm. Yeah. It becomes like an echo chamber and a fun house mirror. And it, it can get very, very strange and dark yeah. and chaotic in there. Mm. You're making me think of, the Thich Nhat Hanh poem, uh, Call Me By My True Names. I haven't read Have that. Have you ever read that? Should so I pull it goes, up? Yeah, he goes down the whole list of, uh, you know, the I guess being the bug and the frog that eats the bug and the refugee girl and the sea pirate that rapes her and mm. all of the, the duality and just saying, call me by all of my true names. I'm all of this somewhere inside of me. You mm. know? And it's making me think of there's a... Um, a coworker here um, that does uh, she teaches uh, Kabbalistic um, modes of treatment and stuff and, and so during a, a gathering a few weeks ago she had us all name something in the collective that's not of us mm-hmm. or that we think is not of us that should be apologized for or atoned for mm. and then apologize for it as if we did it. Okay, say that one more time. So, for instance, um, I chose the thing in the collective mm. that should be apologized for is um, showing the world that cruelty and following Jesus are compatible. Okay. And she said, okay, apologize for that. Mm. This is so interesting, Tony, because you know there's this Catholic idea of reparations. Have you heard of not like not like reparations in this the current social sense um, with Black and Indigenous people, but this idea that if a person it's exactly the same practice. I was taught it when I became a Catholic that you could pick a sin essentially, and you could make amends for it Mm. by your own acts of essentially whether it be fasting or interceding in prayer you could say like i'm taking on this cultural ill let's say it's racism um and make sacrifices in your own life and believe that that's going to impact the whole kind of similarly to what we were talking about with the monastics and i was like that really appeals to me as a concept even then i was like that's appealing to me that it might be possible 
that by taking it into yourself, which is my, maybe what Jesus did on the cross, right? Like taking all of this sort of burden of our psychic torment on himself and reconciling it all to itself, um, that we can actually participate in that mm-hmm. by doing that internal work of the shadow of not mm-hmm. acknowledging what we hold in our own bodies. I love that. That's so interesting. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So anyone out there listening, that's a great exercise or, um, I can't encourage you enough to read the Thich Nhat Hanh poem. It's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, an, another aspect of this I think is important to touch on before we move to another topic is mm-hmm. Carl Jung talked about how archetypes, and he especially was talking about the Antichrist archetype, will have this sense of numinosity mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And, and that word meaning this sense of the kind of emotional pull that you feel when something feels sacred or religious. Mm. And so that pull um, manifests in a lot of ways, you know, like right now is nationalism and uh, white supremacy and things like that. But it has this emotional, um, larger cause mm. kind of a feel to it. Mm-hmm. And that that energy um, pulls us into the darkest. And by darkest... I mean the most unconscious aspects of ourselves, and we operate from that place. Mm. And, um, and so I think it's it's worth thinking about where that shows up in our lives. And yes. then, and then he also said that archetypes have a sense of generativity. So there's a a feeling of a desired outcome. So the desired outcome mm-hmm. might be division or to spread false information. Or like you pointed out earlier, it might also be like unity and love in mm-hmm. this way that really isn't it's real unity. It's actually just bypassing. Yeah. Yeah. That is fascinating. There is this author, Caroline Miss, M-Y-S-S. She wrote a book called The Anatomy of the Spirit. She has a book called Archetypes. And she has this really cool deck of cards. It's called the Archetypes deck, I think. It's not a tarot deck. Um, it's a mapping system, an archetypal mapping system. So basically you go through this series of exercises with the little book that comes with it, where you look at the list and it's everything from trickster to antichrist to, you know, father, mother, all of the, you know, crone, maiden, all these different story archetypes. And you kind of make a list, you can do it repeatedly throughout life because you evolve and shift moment to moment sometimes of like the 15 of them, let's say, that really jump out at you as being present in your current sort of state of being and state of mind. And it has to include some quote unquote negative ones. Like they can't be all positive for it to be an honest sort of take. And so you, you pick that list and then you do these different exercises with each one. And it is so helpful and practical because when we're thinking about all this in theory and up here in the brain, like above the practical self or the practical world, um, it's like, how do we, how do we actually do this? How do we actually engage with these stories and figures in a way that actually heals us? And I think that's one way and you don't have to use a deck to do that, but to look at these lists and go like, what do I, you know, what do I live with? What do I often find? And this is another thing that I do. What patterns am I exhibiting in my relationships? What role am I taking on on a regular basis? 
and what are the good things about that and what are the like shadowy things about that and how can I not necessarily even change myself but become aware of those things enough to be able to do them a little more consciously a little bit more um, you know there's all this like because I've, I've done like CODA for codependency and ACA and I'm not I'm not knocking those things but for me, they didn't really get into the psychic, psychological mechanisms behind codependency. It was more like accountability and acknowledge. You do acknowledge, like, I do this thing where I, whatever it is, I save, I fix, I rescue. That's great. And it's like step one. But I think in deep archetypal work, we can actually uh, go into the truer than true zone you're talking mm. about. It's not just the facts of what I'm doing and I should stop doing them. It's like, why and how have I reached this place? And what am I gaining from it? And what am I losing by it? And uh, I love that work. And I'm thinking about becoming, she offers, Caroline Miss offers this, an archetypal consultant-like course. I've thought about becoming certified in it because I believe in it so much. I mean, mm -hmm. it's been so helpful to me to go, like, how am I the Antichrist? How am I a trickster? How am I these things I'm so scared of? Mm-hmm. Gosh, it really helps remove the fear from my day-to-day -day life in general. Yeah, it's beautiful work too because I think most people are afraid of those things and just say, let me get rid of that or pray it away or mm -hmm. confess it away or whatever when really the, the work is to go in and yeah. communicate with mm -hmm. <laughs> and relate to. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think in a lot of that work, at least in my experience, it goes from being the monster under the bed Mm -hmm. to this sort of helpless creature that needs you to yes, parent it. <laughs> exactly. You get the opportunity to parent your own inner child when mm -hmm. you remove all that stigma. Um, I am having a memory. Oh, let's talk about sexuality for a second because I, you know, it's not really technically related to Antichrist, but at the time I would have said it was like lust and sex, you know. And in my early 20s, I was the most the most chaste, the most pure. I mean, I had some pride around that. I also had a lot of fear that was driving that. Fear of hell, fear of retribution, fear of all the things that I had been told would happen if I, you know, engaged with sexuality very openly or freely at all. So I didn't like kiss anybody till I was 26. I was so, so, so careful. But there was this one experience I had in my early 20s where um, I had a friend who I had a crush on and he had no idea, you know, and I was at another friend's house that was kind of a mutual friend and he was coming over and I was like really excited about it. And so this girlfriend of mine, I was giving her a foot rub because I'm a, I'm a very physical person with my friends. I often massage my friends, I still do. I just have always been that way. And I'm giving her this foot massage and he comes in and he's like, can I get one of those? And I said, yes. And then I dealt with, I have a journal where I, and I recounted this and I discovered it when I was moving last year and read this and was just like, holy shit. Like this is a shame storm of epic proportions. I mean, I lambasted myself to the, like I, I wrote about what happened. I was like, I gave him a foot massage. And I think my words were, I said, I should erect a life-size cross in my living room and I should just hang on it until God takes away my sinful, like fleshly lust for this person because it is so disgusting to me that I would like basically touch his body and have any feelings about it. Mm -hmm. I was so like unable to 
reckon with being a sexual person that then I got married and like sex was now allowed, but I had this split relationship to it that absolutely showed up, mm. even though it was okay, quote unquote, now it's okay. Now it's allowed. I mean, I was so dissociated that I was out of my body for like eight straight years mm. because that's the split thinking I had about being sexual and it that's what happens when we repress a part of ourselves. Um, and in my case, this would have been, I get, well, I don't know what archetype I would use. Maybe like, a, well, maiden energy is in there. The sort of young, sexually curious, possible, mm -hmm. it's like sort of that, that was in there. And then maybe like somewhat the, um, I don't want to say witch, but kind of more mystical side of sexuality sort of a high priestess or like a, right. you know, there's a lot being repressed and it, what it ends up doing is becoming this ugly face of, um, something we don't even want, you mm -hmm. know, we don't even want it, but it's like the repression creates the monster and then you're just like tormented right. by it. And it took me years to get out of that and I'm still untangling it, mm. you know? Yeah. It's wild. All the pressure not to embody what's been considered historically the dark feminine when really... Mm -hmm. It's not dark. <laughs> no. I mean, and funny thing is, I didn't even do anything that's... Right. Like, no one else would look at what happened. Well, maybe some... Maybe my puritanical relatives would say that was inappropriate. But I took it to a place that was... I was just, like, reading it, and I was like, I'm so troubled by this. Like, I want to be amused, but I almost can't. Yeah. Because it was so extreme. I was like... I really wanted to flagellate myself over it, and I did. And... um that is, that's a deep psychic wound around sexuality that was created mm -hmm. by a very split culture, um, purity culture. And yeah. that's a whole, we could probably do a bunch of episodes on that by itself. Yeah. But. yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's religious trauma, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm sure there's sexism and patriarchy mm -hmm. and all kinds of other mm -hmm. stuff in there but <laughs> oh yeah yeah at at any given moment this is kind of a hard truth but at, at any given moment the most anti-christian force in us or around us might be mm -hmm. the particular manifestation of christianity that mm -hmm. we're <laughs> exposed to or participating in or perpetuating yes yeah isn't it so interesting too how and doesn't Jung say this? No, no, Jung doesn't say this. I was reading it at this psychologist I follow on Instagram, actually, who's talking about how religious and spiritual trauma, well, it's very subjective because the ideas themselves are not necessarily, sometimes, but not necessarily what carry the wound into our bodies. It's how we interact with them based on our own sort of psyche, the state of our own psyche. And in my case, like there are plenty of people I know I do know a lot of these people who were raised Christian to some degree and were just able to let it roll off their back mm -hmm. for whatever set of reasons. They just weren't so deeply impacted by the ideas. Whereas I was like taking it in so seriously and so deeply and internalizing it so much because of my own woundedness. Um, so it had, they have different chemical and alchemical reactions with different people. Mm -hmm. Which is why you have 90,000 or 30,000 denominations or whatever. Like mm -hmm. people interact with these ideas very specifically. Yeah. And I think we do often seek out the religious group that most reflects our temperament, you mm. know, and our psychic wounded 
our set of psychic wounds. <laughs> we yeah. sort of grab, we're like, oh, a Presbyterian is true. But I think more than likely, it's more like, I relate to how this is being just dealt with or right. discussed. It right. feels comfortable to me. Yeah. I think that's pretty at play. God, that's a whole universe of exploration. All this, all the theological splits through the mm-hmm. centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The Antichrist one, interestingly, we didn't even begin with the history of this uh, current cultural manifestation of the Antichrist. But, but in 1835, that was when the first um, known kind of like widely spread uh, proliferation of the idea that everything in Revelation was literal. Mm-hmm. That actually wasn't really broadly believed in any sector of Christianity until the like mid-1800s. And it was, there are two theories, two working, or two working hypotheses about how the idea arose. One is that there was a girl in a Scottish prayer meeting who channeled it in like a, like a Pentecostal type vision. Like, oh, these stories are actually literal. There's a real person coming. I mean, there's always been that in culture, but there was, um, there was a shift when uh, a man named John Nelson Darby, who was a part of the Church of Ireland at the time, split off from the Church of Ireland to start the Plymouth Brethren, mostly because he decided that, uh, or in part because he decided that the Revelation story was literally true and we needed to be hunkering down, bunkering down, and like figuring, and so he, and it actually birthed the um, pre-tribulational rapture idea. That, the Antichrist part had always been present throughout cultures, but then he intersected it with a literal reading of the idea that Jesus was going to return and actually take everyone, and there was going to be this left-behind moment, that actually had never really been widely proliferated. It was kind mm. of seen as potentially metaphorical, or maybe like, a, uh, I think people understood the literature at, at certain times, but like he, he spread the idea, and it spread like wildfire, which mm-hmm. is so interesting, because culture must have been primed for that. Mm-hmm. So he put that out there, and created a, Schofield created a translation of the Bible that that almost like on purpose highlighted that and referenced it, you know, in a certain way. And it took off and created the modern uh, left behind movement. Mm -hmm. Like those books wouldn't have happened if someone in that cultural position hadn't proliferated that idea on a broad scale. And so I come from that church. That's, that is the culture I was raised in. And so the, it's so um, familiar to me, this like Mm -hmm. way of thinking. we, We studied revelation once a year so that we could be prepared to look for the signs of the times. Mm. And um, what a stressful way to live. Yeah. <laughs> what a stressful way to live. Yeah. It's wild. It doesn't feel like something that brings life that really is life. No. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. no. That, that makes me think of how, you know, I mean, you basically just summarize how a couple of one-liners from from John and then mm-hmm. Revelation and all that has been uh, sort of made into this thing that's fixated on, and it's it's a really useful tool. It's really powerful, mm. um, but there's so much that that gets missed in that when we're when that leads us to look for the Antichrist as this one person somewhere in the future, and we'll, 
surely no, because we'll be so opposed to mm -hmm. them and, and you lose the trickster quality <laughs> mm -hmm. of, of not just oh. the Antichrist, but an Antichrist. And again, mm -hmm. the one within and then all the ways that that may be um, something we experience internally or externally or relationally on a given day. But even more than that, how, and Carl Jung pointed this out, how the... You, you could conceptualize the Antichrist as the mm -hmm. opposite of Christ, the shadow of Christ, all these ways. But one thing he really focused on was an imitator mm -hmm. of Christ who mm -hmm. um, does bad things and calls it good. Mm -hmm. Or at least we co-opt that person and let them do bad things and call it good. Mm -hmm. But where we take things that are antithetical to the life and teachings and modeling of Christ... Some road rage, <laughs> speaking of which. Yeah. Um, so when we take qualities that are antithetical to the life, the modeling, and the teachings, an example of Christ, and call them Christian or call them good, and mm -hmm. again, I think that, that takes us into mm -hmm. inner and outer work, and, and it's something to think about politically, when we sort of, you see segments of Christianity co-opt a candidate that is basically the exact inversion of mm. Jesus behaviorally and find ways to make it okay. Um, mm. Yeah. I love what you said earlier about, you know, it's hard to, or when we were talking about the capitalist sort of machine and how people enshrine the system by looking at people as incidental to the system or somehow accessories to it. But it's also, it's really hard to avoid enshrining it. It's also really hard to avoid washing, like throwing your hands up and washing your hands of it. And I don't think either of those things is Christ energy. Mm -hmm. um, it's much tougher to stay with your boots on the ground. It can, like I know that people who have, I've, I've totally done this. I have some kind of mystical awakening via whatever method or substance that, that is. And that could be in a sort of ecstatic praise and worship thing. It could be through a plant. It could be through meditation. I'll have this mystical experience of the oneness or of transcendence or whatever. And my temptation will be, I just want to stay there. I just want to live there. I want to like live with my head in the clouds basically and be there all the time. I want to be on nitrous oxide. Like, I don't want to be here. Like, be here now is hard. It's so hard because it means not just um, accepting that all things are happening and happen for a reason. That's a, that's a common, in New Age and Christianity, spiritual bypassing thing that we do. It's like, well, if you're here, you chose this. And you, like, it's a, another version of it's your fault. Mm -hmm. Sort of like... Well, it's your fault, you know, the, the woman who was holding the baby and saying they get, they're getting what's coming to them. And then you have like the new age person going, if you're a slave, that means you chose it. I've heard people say that. Mm. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, these are both antichrist things. Because be here now and accepting this means accepting all the complexity and the shadow inside yourself and inside every other person and going like, this is the mess we're working with. And like, there are things that are not okay in mm -hmm. the world. And no amount of like mystical transcendence gives us, I think, permission to detach from that. But we do. We detach from it either by enshrining the system or washing our hands of it 
a lot of times. It just takes a lot of healing and hard work to stay salt of the earth. It's very mm-hmm. difficult. Yeah. Because <laughs> just, at least with the internal work, always on that spectrum between humility and humiliation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we're going to feel some measure of humiliation mm-hmm. in this work. Yeah. Whether that's mm-hmm. individual or admitting that maybe even in, um, a collective stance we've taken is somehow wrong or harmful, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems very Christ-like to me, to accept humiliation and to know that it might even be, maybe it's just, maybe it's unjust, but just to say, like, I take this on for the cult, for the collective, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that feels like another picking up of a cross is to accept Mm -hmm. the humiliation that comes with this kind of life and work. Yeah. And as, as we move to a close, I'll, I'll read a, a sort of a, a, a blurb about what that might look like so we could look for it within ourselves within religious leaders political leaders uh, because again I think the Antichrist manifest as something we participate in mm-hmm. as a group um, when we sort of cluster around these certain energies and so this is what it says uh, throughout the course of human history Antichrist have used uh, the numinous quality of the archetype or the, the thing that sort of leads us towards mass-mindedness uh, in ways that are dangerous and dehumanizing. And so Antichrists have used this to sway followers to commit atrocities in the name of tribe, country, or God. Mm. Um, the key is how the archetype manifests. Antichrists historically have killed, terrorized, divided, spewed hatred, fear, and confusion. Mm. The positive pole of the Christ, the Christ archetype, intends peace, unity, love, sharing, and caring, while the negative or the Antichrist pole of mm-hmm. the archetype intends war, division, hatred, greed, and selfishness. Mm. The positive pole generates actions to bring people together, to foster feelings of safety, security, and happiness. The negative manifests anxiety, division, and feelings of insecurity and fear. Mm. That's a good daily exercise to look for. Look for those instincts in ourselves and love and accept them and, and heal them instead of saying, you know, I hate you and I reject you. And what would that do? What would that do? Yeah, I think it, the thing it, it always lands for me is, you know, the, I think the, what we largely think of as sort of the pinnacle of the teachings of Jesus is, you know, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And mm-hmm. that word perfection literally meaning wholeness. Mm-hmm. So not being divided. And so becoming an individual mm-hmm. is the opposite of being a individual, someone who's fragmented and, you know, mm. not integrated. And so integration in absolutely requires what you were just saying being here now with all of the above and embracing and taking ownership of all of it and mm-hmm. um, anything we split off, any of our yes. shameful places, yes. dark places, yes. hurt places, yes. um, it's the, that's the opposite of being whole, yes. being, quote, perfect. I think I'd love to close on, I think it's a quote of Carl Jung, and if it's not, sorry, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he, um, he said it best, or whoever said this, um, accept all, reject none. That's the principle. Mm-hmm. Like once you reject something, it gains power, becomes the monster. So acceptance is actually how you shrink it down. 
Thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Archetypical. <laughs>